astray, wars and rumors of wars, and they see those as signs of the time. And they are signs of the times, but not necessarily the end of time, right? If you look at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the temple courts, and the disciples are remarking on the glory of the temple. And Jesus says, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's telling them about the judgment that will come upon the temple and upon Jerusalem. In part because that age is about to end, but also due to judgment against the unbelief of much of Israel. Shortly thereafter, they sit on the Mount of Olives and the disciples come and and they ask him, When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now they thought they were asking one thing. But Jesus' answer shows they were asking two distinct things. And so the first thing he talks to them about is when these things will be. Right? The throwing down of the stones of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment that is about to come upon unbelieving Israel. And that's what he answers first of all. But then he answers the second question starting in verse 36. And that question is answered distinctly differently. He's been talking about signs that are distinguishable, discernible. Things which should make them get up and flee without a moment's notice. Things that they will recognize. And he even explicitly says, this generation will not pass away until these things are so. So you can know that time, right? The judgment on unbelieving Israel. But then, verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now he's talking about the final judgment. His return to judge all who have ever lived. And he says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Two distinct ends for two distinct categories within humanity. And for us that's a comfort. 
And that's what we see in the very last part of our Confession of Faith. You can find this in the back of your Psalter hymnal, page 90. Uh, Last week we looked at the first half of Article 37 of our Confession of Faith, which reminds us that when the appointed day arrives, all who have ever lived will be gathered before Christ and they will be judged. The books will be opened which reveal all that we have ever done, all that we have ever thought, all that we have ever said or even desired. And also the book of life which reveals the elect. And on that day, the Lord will separate the elect from the reprobate, those who loved the Lord from those who hated him. And therefore, the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful to the wicked and ungodly, but most desirable and comfortable to the righteous and elect, because then their full deliverance shall be perfected. And there they shall receive the fruits of their labor and trouble which they have borne. Their innocence shall be known to all. And they shall see the terrible vengeance which God shall execute on the wicked who most cruelly persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. And who shall be convicted by the testimony of their own consciences and shall become immortal. But only to be tormented in the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. But on the contrary. The faithful and elect shall be crowned with glory and honor, and the Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and his elect angels. All tears shall be wiped from their eyes, and their cause, which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates as heretical and impious, will then be known to be the cause of the Son of God. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Therefore we expect that day with most ardent desire to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Beloved disciples of God in Christ, For most folks, the day of judgment is not a popular topic of conversation. That's not to say they never speak of it or think of it. I mean, death is unavoidable. It affects 100% of the population. And everyone necessarily finds some way to deal with it. Most people, most of the time, do their level best to ignore death and judgment. When they must think of it, most Americans assume that nearly everyone ultimately will be okay. You know, as long as you weren't a serial killer or, you know, Hitler or Stalin or Saddam Hussein, you'll probably be fine. Some folks go so far as to say that absolutely everyone is going to be saved in the end. Most won't go that far, but... but The common conception is either that on that last great day, God is going to grade on the curve, right? If you've done, you know, better than the worst, you'll probably get in. It'll be fine. Or, or, you know, on that last great day, or maybe even the day you die, 
God will make it very plain exactly what reality is, exactly who He is. And if you haven't sought His favor in the past, well, you'll get a a do-over. You'll get a second chance. The way they conceive of the judgment varies from person to person. But what, what their various theories have in common is the idea that I and my friends and family will be okay. We're not sure what awaits us. We have no reason really, no objective cause for why we believe what we believe. But we're pretty sure we're going to be fine. It's going to work out in the end. But they're going to have a terrible surprise. They're going to have a terrible eye-opening experience. Because they don't have a ground. They don't have a basis for what they believe. And they have studiously avoided any thought of the reality that in their heart they know. I mean, look at modern funeral practices. Modern funeral practices on the whole are aimed at avoiding the obvious. Right? They prefer cremation over burial. In part because of cost, but mainly because then they don't have to deal with a big hole in the ground. They can sanitize it. They can romanticize it. They don't have to look at a body. Funerals are no longer funerals. They're celebrations of life. We talk about all the fun we've had. We talk about how wonderful the person was. We sometimes emphasize it to the point you don't really recognize the person they're talking about. I say we. I'm talking about Americans in general. Thankfully, we don't do that here. But why do they do that? They do that because if they look backward, they cannot look forward. They cannot consider the reality. They cannot ponder the fact of the judgment. But folks, whether they ponder it or not, whether they avoid it studiously or study it, the fact is one day every single person who lives will stand before God and will answer for all that they have done, all that they have desired to do. People avoid it, they flee from the thought because it terrifies them. But for us, it need not terrify us. As believers, instead of being terrified, we can be comforted by the thought of the day of judgment. Because we know the truth. And we know where escape from sin, escape from judgment is found. Our comfort rests, and that's... that's, Really what this all talks about. This all talks about how for us that coming day of judgment isn't something we need to fear. It's not something we need to flee from. It's a comfort. And that comfort rests not at all. Children hear this. That comfort that we have in the face of judgment rests not in what we have done. Not in what we have accomplished, not even a little bit, but it rests on the completion of the promises of God, that first of all. Now last Sunday morning we considered the certainty of the day of judgment. Those who deny that the day of judgment is coming, they do so because their life, their Decisions, their priorities arise from sinful desires. And they know in their heart that that won't stand before God's judgment. 
But we openly acknowledge that the day of judgment is coming because we believe God's word. And God has said that even as he once judged the world through a massive flood, he's going to judge the world through flames of fire. So we believe that day is coming and we take comfort in it because the one who said that he's going to judge also said there is freedom from judgment. There is escape from judgment for those who look to him. Our confession says the judgment is desirable, even filled with comfort for those who are the righteous and the elect. That's who can take comfort in the judgment. Those who are the righteous and the elect. They're elect. That means that God chose them before all time. Right? God chose to save them. He chose to work in their lives in such a way as to draw them to himself. And in drawing them to himself, he makes them righteous. Not objectively so. It's not like those who are elect suddenly turn away from all their sins, suddenly manage to uh, accomplish their own salvation. No, they're righteous because the Lord draws them to Jesus Christ. And in drawing them to Jesus Christ, He makes them righteous in Himself as He has promised. It's an amazing promise. God has promised, He's promised us two things that give us comfort for the day of judgment. One is righteousness, one is or deliverance, one is reward. Deliverance, well, that's essential. Young people, think back to what you've learned about the effects of Adam's sin. What did Adam's sin do in us? It left us guilty, worthy of, before we did anything, because Adam represented us, we were guilty. We were worthy of God's wrath. It also left us corrupt which means that we always will choose to sin. And so not only are we guilty in Adam, we all make ourselves guilty and worthy of God's wrath every single day. But God promised to deliver us if we will turn to Christ. He sent Jesus to live the perfect life for us so that His righteousness could be attributed to us who are joined to him by faith. And then he caused him to endure the punishment that our sins deserved so that we could know that we have no debt to pay. He paid it all. That's why it said in our assurance of pardon just a little bit ago, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how he reconciles us. That's how he delivers us. If we're in Christ, we can be confident that when we stand before God, there will be no sin that has not been marked paid in full. There will be no debt remaining for us to pay. I marvel that anyone can take comfort in in any scheme that includes purgatory. I can't stand up under even a little bit of God's wrath. But we don't have to. Jesus did it all. One of the final things he said on the cross, it is finished. That means every every bit of every penalty for every one of your sins has been paid. All of the righteousness, all of the holiness that is required to enter God's presence, it's been accomplished. All you need to do is trust in Jesus and it's yours. He gives us deliverance that is complete and he doesn't even stop there. 
We heard in our, our uh, call to worship this morning. The Lord is near to all who call on Him. To all who call upon Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. That's what He did in sending Jesus. If that's all that He did, that'd be an amazing comfort. We could stand before God knowing that we we're reconciled, we're at peace. But He doesn't stop there. He also promises us a reward. We heard that in our scripture reading from Matthew 24. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Folks, that describes us. Jesus set us over his possessions. Every gift he's given you, every bit of provision he's entrusted to your hand, he's given all of that to you. Now, you can't rightly earn anything with that, right? I mean, he gave it all to you. And he also gave you the strength and the ability and the health to use it all, right? So if you do the absolute best with it, Really, you've just done what you were designed and created and saved to do. And yet he promises, if that's what you're doing, if you're using it to my glory, if you're using it as I commanded you when I come, I'm going to set you over even more. I'm going to bless you even more abundantly. How wonderful that is. Can you imagine? There's such a a joy. There's such a feeling of accomplishment when you take those gifts that you've been given and you use them in a way that is productive, right? I mean, yeah, it's nice to lay around on the beach for a day. That's fine. But there is a satisfaction that can't be found elsewhere in a day of hard labor that results in something built, something accomplished, something done, right? Now imagine... Imagine being able to do that without any stain of sin, without any flaw, without any failure. That's what he promises us. We're going to be absolutely fulfilled by the ability to serve him. Absolutely fulfilled by the calling that he gives us in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, we don't know really what all of that blessing, all of that reward is going to look like. 1 Corinthians 3 indicates that the reward of one will differ from the reward of another. That each of us will be given a reward that is, is perfectly suited to us and to the life that we've lived. And yet we know that even the, the, the smallest reward that Christ gives is greater than anything this world could ever offer. So we can eagerly look forward to that day. Our confession says... We expect that day with a most ardent desire to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we should. We should look forward to it with great joy, with great longing. We might not know what those rewards are going to look like. We might not know what it's going to feel like to be in the fullness of the blessing of God. But we know it's going to be amazing beyond anything we've experienced in this world. Imagine the most fulfilling, the most wonderful, the most joy-filled day that you have ever experienced. And multiply it by a thousand. How amazing that will be. 
Therefore, Jesus said in our scripture reading, verse 42, Therefore, stay awake. Look forward to the coming of your master. Eagerly anticipate the glory of his return and the wonder of his reward. And as you ponder that, as you consider it, sing his praises. Tell others what he's like. Urge them to encourage or to, to look forward to it. Of course, not all await that day with joy. In fact, not all should. Many are they who in their hearts dread the coming of Christ because they know they've lived as rebels against him. They know that that day means answering for all of their rebellion. They have made themselves by their sin God's enemies. And that day is a comfort for us also because not only does it bring about the fulfillment of his promises, it also brings about the conviction of his evil enemies. What does that word mean, conviction? A criminal is a criminal because of the acts he's done, right? But when he is convicted of those unlawful acts, all the world acknowledges his guilt. All the world acknowledges the ugliness of his sin. All of the world sees the consequence in his punishment. And that's what's coming for those who live as enemies of the Lord. Jesus says in what we read from Matthew 24, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Now hold there. Notice the focus of those who were God's enemies. They were focused on themselves, their work, their marriage, their delight, their pastimes. They robbed their creator because they took all of the gifts that he had entrusted to them and they used it selfishly. They used it for their own pleasure, according to their own desires. But one day soon they'll have to answer for why they didn't use what God gave them to serve him. Again, speaking of Noah's day, he says they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Now that ignorance did not arise from God hiding it from them. Romans 1 says the very creation itself testifies to the fact that God exists and that they were to worship Him. But they hid their eyes. They traded that that knowledge that surrounds them for the ignorance of their darkened hearts. They chose to blind themselves and to serve the creation rather than the ever-blessed Creator. Romans 2 says their conscience has testified against them. Reminded them of what is right and wrong. They could not hide from the reality of what they were called to do and be. But they chose ignorance. They chose to pretend. And therefore on that day they will be like that wicked servant Jesus describes in his parable. They will say to themselves, my master is delayed and begin to beat their fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. But the master will come on that day when they do not expect him. And great will be their punishment. Eternal will be their punishment. Their service was meant to be eternal. The glory of God that they were to bring was meant to be endless. And therefore the consequence of their refusal will be just as endless. 
But there's a comfort in that for us. Because here and now, they hate us. Why do they hate us? They hate us because they hate God. They hate us because they are surrounded by the evidence that God exists. And we didn't go along with their lie. They hate the fact that we won't go along with the lie of evolution. Because they're desperate to believe in that. Otherwise, otherwise they've got to acknowledge that all this design around us means the designer whom they will have to stand before one day. They hate us because we strive to put away the sin that identifies them. They hate us because... We seek to live in a way that's holy because the Lord our God is holy and they hate holiness. Now, we don't see very much of that persecution today. Oh, there are glimpses of it. That recent Supreme Court ruling certainly pulled the curtain aside for a minute, didn't it? But throughout the world today, there are Christians who live with the knowledge That at any moment, the door could burst open and God's enemies could enter in and strip them of all they possess and take them to prison and beat them and harm their families. At any minute, they might be facing the demand, deny Christ or die. And that time could come on us. We live, I used to wonder, how do, people, how do people live on the side of a volcano? How do people live right next to this, the San Andreas Fault? How do people live in a place that could be just immediately destroyed? But we all do, don't we? At any moment, this fragile peace in which we live could be shattered by the the forces of, of wickedness, the forces of unbelief that hate us, that desire our downfall. The fact that they have not done so is simply a matter of God's goodness restraining them. But on that day they will be no more. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we All must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now for believers, that is a glorious and wonderful thought. Because even when, even when we see our sins revealed, we'll see paid in full. Look at what Jesus has done. Look how gracious he's been for us. We get the opportunity time and time and time again on the day of judgment to say, look at how gracious he's been. Look at how deep his love. But for the unbeliever, the judge's gavel will bang again and again and again and again and again and again. Guilty, 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 guilty. And they will be removed. Can you imagine the world without any naysayer, without any hatred, persecution, 
at all. Every single person longing to praise the Lord, eager to serve the Lord with all they've been given, that's what's coming. Because on that day, every evil rebel who persisted in their rebellion, who persisted in hating the Lord and those who serve Him, they will be removed. They will be judged and taken away to suffer away from the presence of God. And He has something far better waiting for us. Although we too have sinned and rebelled and fallen short, yet because of Christ our sin is forgiven. Righteousness is accounted as ours. We have been adopted as the sons and daughters of God. And on that day, we will experience the crowning of God's elect children. This last of all. What does that mean, the crowning of God's elect children? There are at least four glorious things awaiting, for, awaiting us on that day. First of all, God the Son will confess us. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. John, or Matthew 10, verse 32. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. That means... For all who have confessed him, as Brooke did last week before the church, as we're called to do before our friends and our neighbors, whoever takes those opportunities, this isn't necessarily a stand on the hill, uh, here I stand, I can do no other moment. This is when our co-worker says, what a beautiful morning. And we say, yeah, there there is no artist like God. Or when our neighbor offers condolences for the death of someone we love and we take the opportunity to testify to the comfort we have because they were a believer in Christ. Whoever confesses me, whoever takes that opportunity, Jesus says, I will take the opportunity to confess you as mine before the Father. How glorious that is. Can you imagine standing before all the creation, and Jesus says, this is one of mine. This is my brother. He is a co-heir of all the creation with me. I love him. I died for him, and I lived for him, and he, by the work of God's Spirit, lived for me. What an amazing gift that will be. And with that shall come the comfort of our Heavenly Father. Our confession reminds us that on that day, our Father will wipe away every tear from our eyes. You ever think about the fact that that means that there may be some tears? I think there will be. Because we'll stand on that day of judgment and we will, we will see the condemnation of the wicked. And we've known many of them. They were our neighbors. They were close relatives. They were friends with whom we shared meals. Will we not weep over them? And our own lives will be laid bare. Will we not weep 
over the fact that we didn't serve the Lord with more fervor, that we didn't put away those sins more quickly. But our Father will embrace us and love us and wipe away every last tear. He will comfort us with the assurance, I love you, I used you exactly the way I wanted to use you, you are mine, and no one will ever snatch you away. 2 Thessalonians 1 says He will grant relief to those who are afflicted. And we can look forward to that. Not only will Jesus confess us, but the Father will comfort us. And He will confirm us, thirdly, in the cause for which we stood. Our confession points out that the faith we've embraced is condemned by multitudes. And sometimes, young people, sometimes it is hard to stand against the tide. It's really hard when all of your friends want to go party and you know where they're going to go party and the sin that's probably going to be involved and you say, you know what? I'm going to go home. Even though you know you're going to be mocked, even though you know you're going to be the butt of their jokes tonight, right? It's hard when your co-workers are mocking another co-worker who's Christian who's righteous and you know that you've got to stand up for him and that means that you're going to be a target too. It's hard when our culture despises what is good and right and you know that you're going to be the only one standing in defense of God's ways. That's hard. But on that last great day we're going to stand before all the world, before all who ever lived and God's going to say he chose the right thing. He stood in the right place because he was on my side. And you who mocked him, you who slandered him, you should be ashamed of yourselves because you knew better in your heart of hearts. We will be confirmed as those who stood in the right place, who believed the right thing. And finally, God will crown us with the honor that is due to those who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Our confession says, for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause us to possess such glory as never entered the heart of man to conceive. Jesus said, God will set us over all his possessions. What a privilege to love and serve God eternally in the unique way that He has ordained for us to serve Him. We will rule in a creation renewed as agents of the King. We will bring God glory, and in doing so, we will be glorified because we will be seen as the true children of God. Can you imagine that? People look on you, and they say, She looks, she acts, she speaks just like her older brother Jesus. And that is the privilege, that is the glory that will be ours forever. Beloved children of our Lord, all of this is why that coming day of judgment is a day of comfort for us. It's a day of comfort because we will see the fullness of the promises of Christ fulfilled. Because we will see the removal of all who stand opposed to God and because we will be crowned with glory and honor in Christ So let's look forward to that day. Let's speak to one another of that day. 
Let us study earnestly the promises that God has given concerning that day. And let us make it our constant desire, our constant effort to be well prepared for that day. He said to us in 2 Corinthians 5, In Christ you are a new creation. On that day we'll see what that means in all its fullness. So let's prepare for that. Let's look forward to that. And let us pray with the last book of the Bible. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have given us such amazing promises concerning the end. We know that if we stood on the basis of our own merits, we would have no hope of standing at all. But you have provided in Christ precisely what we need that we might stand on that day of judgment, that we might receive your comfort and that we might know the glory of your love and a, a relationship with you that lasts throughout eternity. Lord, make us to be eager for that day. Cause us to study the, the glory and the blessing that will be ours on that day and speed the day of your coming. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together of the glory of that day, the glory that is, is ours as we stand and sing together number 372, number 372. Mm-hmm.